Welcome to December's audio mission from CMS, the Church Mission Society. I'm Trevor Smith, and for the next 20 minutes or so, why not take a break from thinking about Christmas, if you are, and let me take you around the world to meet members of the CMS family, people whose lives have been changed beyond recognition as they've responded to the one whose birth we'll soon be celebrating, Jesus Christ. Dr. Ruth Hulser has been a mission partner with the Diocese of Tabora in Tanzania for 10 years. She runs a health centre and the One Family Community Project. Another area of work is the mobile health clinics, which Sarah Holmes found out about when she met Ruth. We do five mobile clinics a month um, normally, and that's um, one clinic is in two villages about 120 kilometres away. That's about um, 70, 80 miles and then the other ones are not so far away, they're about 30, 40 miles, but it's quite a journey because a lot of this is on unmade road and actually then usually at the end they're off the track, so there's no road at all and we're just going across the wilderness. So that's um, exciting, challenging and sickening because we often, uh, the, we, have, we have now worked out a system that we only choose the people who don't get go, go sick, car sick very easily because we have to go so early in the morning, usually nobody's had breakfast. So if they have a wonky stomach, then, you know, it's not really fun to have to stop every five minutes because someone has been sick all the time. And anyway, they're not very fit then by the time they arrive. So we have to go across a lot of unmade road and it really is, you're being bumped around. And then we get there, we see the patients. Um, we can see between 200, 250 patients normally, but we have one location where we see up to 450 in one day. That could be 300 children. Uh, maybe 60 or 70 pregnant ladies and 50 or 60 patients. So our lab is only one person comes with a, a microscope and can do about 10 different tests. So that person gets very, very busy very, very quickly. Um, and then um, I, as a doctor, see these patients and um, one of my nurse midwives will, um, with, with lots of local help, will start immunization of the children. Um, and another nurse midwife or auxiliary nurse who has learned how to look after pregnant ladies will examine the pregnant ladies and send them to the lab for all their routine tests. And um, this is one of the biggest um, benefits of the mobile clinic is that we're coming with a lab because unfortunately in that particular district there is no uh, lab at all. Uh, and so this is the only chance that people have to get tested for syphilis, HIV, AIDS, anemia, worms, um, waterwork infections, malaria. So people come sometimes walking from very long distances. And they also we subsidize the tests because we think that the people in the villages don't have so much money, which sometimes my staff say is not true, but it depends on where, they, where we go. But some areas are better and they have more harvest, but some areas really are very deprived. So we offer these tests at quite a subsidized price and therefore a lot of people even walk from very long distances in order to be get a test because it's financially and physically available. I want to end with something that I, I wanted to really ask at the very beginning. Your life has changed really obviously over the 10 years but also you've become a mother yeah. and he's um, you called him the best thing that's happened to you can you tell me about him his name is Juma I think um, yeah I mean I um, went to Tanzania and I'm single um, so I knew that going to Tanzania at that phase of my life I was 34 I was a bit older than that but I'm telling you <laughs> anyway um, that that would probably mean that I wouldn't uh, be particularly able um, to find someone who would suit that lifestyle um, and so I knew that that I would probably remain single, but I wasn't quite so sure what that would mean that I would have to remain childless. But I sort of let the issue go on and on. Uh, I never very much did about it, uh, did anything about it. But um, then uh, three years back, I sort of came to a point where I said, OK, God, do you really 
mean that I have to remain childless all these years um, because I really would love to be a mother. Um, and I wasn't quite sure. I said to God, I don't really know what kind of thing would be good for me, but you know me a lot better. So if you want me to have a baby or a boy or a girl or siblings or a older child, should it be healthy? Should it be sick? Uh, I wasn't really particularly uh, really sure what would be a good thing or what I wanted or whether maybe, you, God, you should just leave me as I am and I should be happy with what I have. And um, within a month, um, we had Juma come to me. Um, and Juma is um, a bush child um, and his family um, mother is unfortunately dead and his grandmother uh, well, became so frail she couldn't look after him anymore. Um, he was very seriously weak with um, very advanced HIV AIDS. And uh, the family just couldn't give him the care that they would have needed. And they just decided to pack him at the uh, on a bike and send him to us via um, a village health worker. They already knew us. Um, and so they just said that we could have him now. And we were very shocked because we didn't understand the background. And they definitely love and care for Juma, but we didn't think that was a very um, appropriate message uh, at the time, not knowing the background. And we... Um, we took him with us because he was very sick indeed and he was on the ward for four weeks and after four weeks every time we in the night I wanted to go you know, I was carrying him around all day and uh, because he couldn't walk because he had some wounds on his legs but anyway in the nights when we had to put him back on the ward he would kick and scream and uh, all sorts of things and he was always begging me to um, come home with me but I had a dog that didn't wasn't very child friendly so I always told him that the dog would eat him so Anyway, so in the end, uh, after he'd stayed with, uh, over with several people who we were trying to find a foster family for him, I said, well, he's been staying with so many people, he could come to me and then the dog would scare him off and that would be that. And because I found it so heartbreaking to have to put him back on the ward every day when he was so very obviously so very unhappy there, um, which actually is not surprising, he was only nine. He didn't know the Swahili, he didn't know the local language, he didn't know the, our lifestyle, he didn't know our food. So then he stayed, he came and stayed with me for one night and he never left. So that was that. So he's decided that I said to him, well, you can choose who I should be. Should I be your auntie or your doctor or what? And he said, well, I know mama, so I've become his mama. So here I am, I'm his mother and I'm now formally fostering him. And so I'm hoping to adopt him now. So because in my heart, he's my son. And I think very much that I'm his mother, even for him. So it's... Um, We've definitely, he's the best challenge, the best reward, the best blessing that I could have ever hoped for. We'll hear more from Ruth later as she brings us our reflection. But for now, she especially asks us to pray that she and the whole team will remain grounded in God to withstand their daily challenges, to have the strength to look to him all the time and receive from him what he graciously and generously gives so that they can be faithful and hopeful and loving. Now from East Africa to North Africa and to Egypt, where we find mission partners Angela and Chris Chalton. They've also completed a decade in mission there. Angela is a school teacher and Chris is currently the director of the Episcopal Training Centre, which provides English classes for Arabic speakers and Arabic classes for English speakers, enabling many foreign workers to be effective in Egypt and North Africa, as well as empowering Egyptians. Naomi Rose Steinberg asked them why English was so important. In Egypt, there is a really big issue around having good English. Good English is a sign of prosperity, of being well-educated. I think a lot of books are not translated um, into Arabic. Um, certain types are, but there's uh, certainly sort of medical books and, and a lot of academic books are just never translated because it's assumed that when you get to that level of education that you must, therefore, have English. Um, so it's even um, something on like a pay scale. In most companies, a part of the pay scale 
is English. If you have English, you get more pay. Now, as an Englishman, and maybe having a bit, um, a little bit sorry for our colonial past, perhaps, or a bit embarrassed about it being there in Egypt as an ex-colony or protectorate or whatever, I did feel a little bit like, well, why should they have to know English? But as the longer I'm there, the longer I really do see it is a key to so many other things. I mean, I've mentioned books, but now with the net as well, there's this real sense that if you have English, you really can fix things. I mean, for example, people in my work think I'm a computer expert, but really I, I just know English and I know how to Google things and I can therefore fix the computer. And then they just can't, even even if they've got quite good English, to have that knowledge of what to look for and, and the vocabulary and the and things like that. And, and also with our children, as we were raising our children, people often used to think we were quite expert in child rearing. We weren't, but we just had books on our shelf. We could look on the net and we wouldn't go running off to the doctor on the first rash on the first child because we, we, we could look somewhere else. We had other options, whereas our friends and neighbours often didn't. So that that ha- does, I think, give you a real key to not just information, but security as well and um, a better understanding of the world. Can you think of any students in particular who um, have maybe gone on from ETC training and because of the English um, knowledge gained, that um, it's made a specific impact for them? Well, I hired one myself. Um, it was <laughs> a good start. Um, someone who'd done well in the course. Um, often it's a key to employment. I mean, one of my very first students right back at level two went all the way through our courses that we taught and he now is a receptionist in a hotel in Sharm el-Sheikh. doesn't sound very exciting to us, but for him, from a small town in Egypt, that really was his key to get out of there. He would have probably still been helping his dad in the local shop had he not had that. So for them, there were both economic reasons, really. Um, I, I, there's certainly plenty of other people who I know who have, have managed to emigrate. It's a shame for Egypt, a lot of this, a lot of brain drain on the nation as people who've got good enough English can get out and do get out. But there's still plenty who stay and, and, are, and are keen to improve the nation. What do you think are the things that we could learn the most from um, either Egyptian Christians or even Egyptian Muslims in terms of practicing faith? I, I think... Certainly what we've seen, um, we're working for the Anglican Church, um, who really do have very good um, faith relations with, um, at a more institutional level really, with um, Islam and with the University of Al-Azhar and the Grand Mufti in Cairo, those kind of areas. There certainly is a real sense that you know what we share together is so much more than what makes us different. And that very, very simple things, although they... Um, you could laugh at them just you know the fact that we share a meal the fact that people come down come together uh, uh, for their holidays christians always go and greet the muslims on muslim holidays muslims always go and greet the christians on christian holidays these kind of things do create relationships that sometimes seem a bit superficial and a bit silly but when something goes wrong or when there's a problem you know that person or you know the guy at the mosque down the end of the road and he knows you and the little building up of not really a friendship but at least a relationship only really matters suddenly at the uh, the really difficult times it might never come to anything but for somebody else it really might and I think those are quite important and I think a lot of things we can learn from that here in the UK of not necessarily sort of interfaith conversation but just interfaith interaction just spending time together visiting each other on the holidays eating together things like that I'm always challenged by my neighbour who and fasts during Ramadan and I mean it was 42 degrees when we left 
Cairo the other week. And so just just the discipline of their of their faith is always a challenge to me. As we sort of think about what maybe you know how God is working in Egypt um, and and also your time here and the message that you'll be bringing to churches here what are some things that people could specifically pray for and we are focusing as we're visiting churches on the story of Joseph um, Joseph and his dream coat um, but particularly at the end of that story that um, God raises up from an unlikely place um, a, a true and just leader of Egypt um, and at the beginning of the story he's in prison and by the end of it, you know, he's in charge of the place. And we we don't know who the, the future leaders are going to be. I'm not necessarily talking about this current president, but, you know, the wider leadership of that nation. Um, you know, new, fresh blood is needed. Something's got to change. We need people like that, like Joseph, to step up, look at problems into the future, and make plans now to fix the bigger problems that are coming. And, and we're really praying for somebody like that to start to be trusted now to make changes that are necessary for the future. Um, for us, that's the really the big thing that Egypt needs before change is going to happen. I think we've already said as well that um, the roads are dangerous. We really pray for safety, more from other cars than from protesters or demonstrations or other such things. And prayer for the Church of Egypt. Egypt has millions of Christians who who could really be a light in that place, um, this is a real time now to step up and say, you know, we're standing for justice. We're not interested in um, whose side you're on or who said what to who. We want to see people treated fairly. We want to see the the best for the majority of people. And I think, you know, the those those sort of ideas of human rights and democracy and all those things, they do really have a Christian basis. And I think the church can can grab some of those things now and say, yes, that's what we stand for too. Let's echo those prayers for the church in Egypt and for good leadership throughout the country. It's rare to get a whole family in mission together for an interview, but a little while ago in Oxford, Jeremy Woodham got to meet Eric and Rena with their children Sam and Kitty, who are based in Bangalore, India, and he spoke to all four of them about being a family in mission. Exciting. They often get a whole family interview. Um, who are we going to start with? Oh, everybody, point, everybody points to Eric. Hi. Now, Eric, you have been involved in theological education by extension, which is not a name that sets the heartbeat racing, you know, on its... Like, theological education always sounds slightly dry, slightly dull. I don't think that's true in reality. Well, what I've been doing is, is helping people who read the Bible anyway but would like to do it more systematically and carefully to get a chance to do it in groups. So the great thing about this theological education by extension is that it gives people a chance to study seriously but without having to go off to college or, or do complicated things that would mean giving up normal life. You can fit it in with normal life. That's the whole point of it. So set the scene a little bit for the the context, the, the people, who are using this, where are they? Well, although I've been based in Bangalore, I haven't met most of our students because our students are all over India and even beyond in the Indians who are working overseas. And the organisation I'm working with, Tafti, um, uses a dozen different languages. So 
from groups of brain people working in um, high-flying jobs in the cities uh, who can do degree courses if they want to in their spare time, uh, right down to people in the village who can read and write but have never done anything since school. You know, sometimes people in their retirement even, or people who are Sunday school teachers, um, or people who were just found themselves becoming a pastor by accident, which, which happens in the villages when suddenly a Christian community arises. All these are, are people who can easily study with the kind of course that TEE offers, where you just need to get a group of friends together once a week to discuss what they've been learning using books during the week as homework. Uh, now, Rena, coming to you, there's a particularly uh, interesting project you're involved with, a women's magazine. Tell us a, li- a little bit more. I mean, what kind of a magazine is it? In some ways, it's your typical women's magazine. It has fashion, it has life stories, um, there's cookery, there's useful household tips, lots of corporate things about how to dress and behaviour within the corporate sector, which is something that a lot of urban women are beginning to involve themselves in and still need help with. So the transition from Indian dressing to Western dressing, which is now required in the corporate sector. So the magazine helps them with all of that kind of thing. But the main thing that I really value about the magazine it's got a centre page which actually speaks of Jesus. And it takes stories from the Bible, explains it, and helps the women apply it to their day-to-day lives in a way that churches do a little bit, but this just reinforces. So if they're on their way to uh, work or they're sitting on a bus or a train, they can take the magazine out and Christ is in the middle. Now, there's another phrase I've heard you use, which is, we're a family on mission. We have the whole family here with... Uh, Sam and Kitty too. Um, Kitty, what does that phrase mean to you, being a family on mission? Um, Well, actually, over the years, we've lived in just so many different places. We've had to move house a lot. We've just moved into our 10th house. So friends sort of come and go for us, depending on which school we're at, where we're living. So the one thing that sticks all the way through is family. So it really helps that we're together as a family in everything that we do and we have a good relationship between us as a family because if we didn't have a good relationship as a family then we'd be completely lost because our friends aren't there all the time we change churches we change houses we change schools so yeah family is like the one thing that keeps us together and keeps us focused and we can deal with our issues together now sam there was a great story uh, i was hearing of uh, you being introduced at a church before you went out the first time how old were you when you first went to India? Oh, when I first went to India, I was a, I was seven, about to turn eight. Yeah. Okay, and the vicar of the church asked you if you were looking forward to going, and you answered with a resounding no. <laughs> um, how did, how, which was brilliant, brutal well, honesty. How did, how did that... Um, well, I don't really remember it, but to be honest, I never really wanted to go to India in the first place. But now I've sort of settled in, I'm used to it, and I like it there, but at first, no, did not want to go. I want to ask you all for some some prayer points now. Rena, uh, are there some things that you would like us to pray about? I keep going on whether we're a family in mission, and I think what I would really want prayer for is that God will take us back to India, because I think that's kind of where our heart is, um, and that he would use us effectively for whatever he wants to do with us. Now, that seems very huge and big and waffly, But at the end of the day, that really is, I think, our desire. I could not tell you specifically what we're going back to do, but I do feel in my heart that that's where we're going to be, back in India, back in Bangalore, and that God would actually open the right doors and enable us to work effectively and use our gifts. And that goes for all of us. For me, I think um, 
I would love to be able to spend more time doing Bible studies, doing teaching perhaps, but uh, particularly with small groups or even one-to-one with people. There, there are loads of places w- where I've been or people who I've met where I would love to spend more time studying the Bible with people. There's always been a limit on how much time I could do on, on that up till now, um, but more opportunities to do that kind of thing would be a good way of adding to the fact that what I've done till now is given other people the opportunity to study the Bible at a distance. Uh, it would be lovely to be more directly involved. Sam, Kitty, hopes, dreams for the future? Oh, probably just for school for the next two years because I'll be in sixth form and that's quite an important part of school life and I'll be doing half a year over here and then if we go back to India I'll have to go back and we'll do the same thing but obviously there'll be a transition and um, yeah, just hopefully that won't cause too much of a problem for my education. Let's pray with the family for their future ministry back in India and let's pray too for the whole CMS family in mission. This season on Audio Mission, our final reflections come from our mission partners themselves. This month, mission partner Dr Ruth Hulser explains how mission may be more about ourselves than we think. I think it's really important uh, not to become a missionary for anyone's sake but for your own. If you want to change something, if you want to convert someone or you want to save the world or anything like that, uh, I think in that case you better stay, first of all, wherever you are, feel safe and and look at yourself because um, I think the most important lesson that I have learned anyway in that time is that God was wanting to use me possibly, but the most important thing was that he was actually aiming for me to grow closer to him and me and him was becoming more important to me in this process of being engaged in this really difficult struggle with a different culture, different language and different environment. And if I had had an agenda on top of that, I think I would have burned out or killed myself or or whatever. But because I only came with the agenda of being there and walking with the local people in their local normal lives with no particular other agenda but to be there as Christ is there, then God had a chance and and Christ had a chance through the Holy Spirit to work in myself and things that came to my attention, I thought, this is really terrible, then triggered, yes, did trigger me and my team to take action and in small and very good, small, manageable steps. As we come towards Christmas and reflect on God coming among us in Jesus, let's also come before God and ask if in our own lives we are working to our own agendas Or is our aim simply to grow closer to him and, in Ruth's words, be there as Christ was there? We would like to thank you all for being part of the CMS family and for your faithful prayer support throughout this year. We wish you a very happy Christmas and a new year full of the newness of God's Spirit.